Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. How are you? Good. This this was an amazing conversation we had. Yeah. With Rose, uh, a, a mother who who is uh, married to another woman, and who had an extraordinary experience with gender issues. Yeah, you know, Rose, um, without fully, I think, realizing it, was buying into a certain idea about child development and gender, which is that. There is a gender identity theory, which this was like the first episode you and I ever touched on. Episode one, gender identity yep. theory versus gender dysphoria. And Rose is one of these parents who was raising her children under this idea of the affirmative model, under the idea that they could have a gender identity. And in a very thoughtful, careful, loving way, under that theory, she ended up leading her son into a trans identity when he was very young. And the key thing about her is her, she, about Rose and many parents and other people, they don't actually know they believe in gender identity theory. They've assimilated that there is such a thing yeah. as a trans kid. They've assimilated this concept without ever criticizing it or thinking about it. They just they've assimilated what is a theory as a fact, which That's is right. fascinating to listen to roses, it's a dawning kind of, oh, there's there's more than one way of looking at this, which is what happened. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, for anybody who's kind of on, on the outside of this world, there seems to be these kind of two camps. There's like the parents who don't really believe that uh, their child has a gender identity and they're trying to affirm the biological sex of the child. And then there are parents who become like real advocates for their trans kids, you know, and they... Mm-hmm. Um, kind of plant their their flag there, saying like, my kid is trans, this is my child's identity. And these two camps obviously can be in very heated polar opposition to one another. And I think what I'd like people to think about in this episode is parents who support and affirm a child's trans identity aren't always you know, these kind of like Munchausen by proxies. This is what is often framed in the culture war conversation. And as you will hear, Rose is an incredibly thoughtful, loving mother who genuinely believes that this was what was best for her son. And of course, she came to see it differently. But we really want to humanize this because as more and more people unknowingly adopt a theory as fact... There are going to be lots of parents who choose transition for their children, whether it's social transition or medical transition. And rather than constantly kind of fueling this polarizing debate, we really want to say, look, everyone here is doing the best with the information they have. And we need to make room for all of these stories, because like we always say, most parents know and love their children and just want what's best for them. And that's true regardless of like what parenting decisions they're making at the time. Yeah, and I think that when somebody has effectively assimilated gender identity theory and when, for example, they're married to a non-conforming lesbian, so they've shown they understand lots of things about being non-conforming and it's not some regressive sexual stereotype. They're they're not in any sort of regressive um, viewpoint. They just have assimilated a theory as a fact. And then when an issue comes up, they go to the experts. And frankly, we we would argue a lot of the experts lead them to places that they don't need to go. That's right. And that would be where the issue is. 
in my view anyway, that if the, if the experts were more informed and more informing that there was more than one way of looking at this, then yeah. I think an awful lot of parents would, would have been served much better. Yeah, and that's a key point in the story, just kind of the influence of the affirmative care clinics and the therapists and the support groups. So we'll hear all of that. Um, just a little bit more about Rose. She's the mother of two young sons. She lives here in the U.S. And in August of 2022, she published a piece in Pitt, which is Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trans, called True Believer. And she wrote True Believer to kind of share her story and help other parents and concerned adults who are trying to understand the dynamics underneath the phenomenon of trans kids. And Rose's firsthand perspective is unique in that she and her partner were these affirming parents, and they really thought their four-year-old son could be trans, and they chose to socially transition him, only to realize they were wrong. After True Believer was published, she was invited on the very popular Trigonometry podcast, and her interview was released in February of 2023. She wrote a follow-up on Pitt entitled A Return to Reality, where she kind of reflects further on the interview. So we hope everyone will enjoy this really important conversation with Rose. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi, Stella. Hello, Sasha. And welcome to our guest, Rose, our anonymous guest. Nice to hear you for our podcast listeners. Thank you so much, Sasha and Stella. So you have a, an incredible story that we imagine is becoming actually very, very common. So do you want to just kind of start by explaining the arc of what, what happened with you and your family and your sons? Yes, I would love to, but I first just want to say thank you to both of you. Just thank you for the invitation for being here today. But I also want to thank you for another invitation. And I think this is an invitation that you did not realize that you extended to me and that you extended to my partner. And that was when you decided to create this podcast. And when you recorded your first episode, which was called Transgender Identity versus Gender Dysphoria, you didn't know that in recording that, in creating this, that a few months after that, that is the podcast I would click on and listen to. The day that I decided, and my partner and I came to the decision that we were going to roll back our son's social transition. So my story and the arc that I'll follow in, in just a moment and kind of get, you know, tell that story in more detail. Um, but we had transitioned our son at a very young age and had come to realize we had made a mistake. And your podcast came to me at the precise moment mm. that I needed it most. Wow. Wow. And so I just want to say that you are the reason I'm here today. You are the reason I wrote the piece, True Believer, in August. Um, and you, by coming here, you know, it is my effort to give back, not only give back to the gift you gave me, but to this whole community of listeners. So thank you. Uh, 
That's was very touching. Yeah, I'm really moved. And <laughs> yeah. uh, you did you did a lot of hard soul searching and work. I mean, maybe the timing was right to hear that simple distinction between these two ideas, but you must have been in a place where you really needed that information. So thank you. That's really nice to hear. <laughs> So I can kind of dive in and just tell yeah, yeah. you know what I can of our story. Um, so as I've alluded to, and as I've spoken to in my, my writing and my past interview, um, when my partner and I came into parenting, we came in with a belief system. It's a belief system I didn't realize I had, but it, that belief system is what we would call gender ideology or this belief that our children could be born um, with a gender identity that could be different than their natal sex. So just as an example, you know, how that looked for us as parents, well, at the 20-week ultrasound, you know, we thought, well, if we find out what sex our child is, we would view that as the sex they were going to be assigned at birth. But we had this, you know, belief that that didn't necessarily determine the identity that they would come to hold. And that there was a possibility that they could be transgender. So that was that belief system that we held coming in. And I would say that it wasn't long after welcoming, you know, our son into the world that my own instincts and intuition started to uh, have a significant tension <laughs> vis-a-vis that belief system, vis-a-vis that ideology. Um, and uh and, you know, it, it became what I would maybe now refer to as almost like being at war with myself, that I thought that I should parent in a way that would allow for my son, if he were to, you know, have this innate transgender identity to feel welcome and accepted and loved no matter what. Um, but at the same time, there were ways that I, I, I wanted to parent him that was like really affirming him as a boy and loving him as that. But those were the tensions that I felt within me. Um, but my partner and I did the best we could. We, you know, and just to be clear, you know, we dressed our children as boys. We, we called them he, him, you know, that they were socialized as boys, but there were other things that we did that tried to leave more neutrality or more openness. And one of those things was to really not explicitly tell them they were boys. And that kind of came to a head when my older son was um, around four years old, because he began to ask me am I a boy or a girl? And um, at that juncture, that tension and that war of ideology versus instinct was pretty significant. And I want, I knew at that time, um, because I had, you know, sadly, this is something that is a wisdom, you know, sort of a, a traditional longstanding human knowledge, much of which we've lost, unfortunately, that a parent is meant to lead and orient their child, orient their child to reality. So fortunately, through being kind of immersed in some of Dr. Gordon Neufeld's work around mm. the attachment-based developmental model, I had kind of regained some of that, you know, knowledge that our culture has lost. I knew I had to guide him, but I also still had this belief system that what if he's transgender, I tell him he's a boy, could that harm him in some way if he came into this identity and then felt, then, then that would cause gender dysphoria. Really, it was like a kind of a flip of this idea. Um, so, so I came up with a compromise, you know, I talked to my partner about it and I came up with the compromise that I would answer him by saying the following words. When boys are, no, when babies are born with a penis, we call them boys. 
When babies are born with a vagina, we call them girls. But some babies who are born with a penis can feel that they are a girl inside. And some babies born with a vagina can feel like they're a boy inside. It really depends on what you feel inside. So we were really um, doing this thing that now I think is much a part of the conversation around gender and transgender children that that this belief system says there is something innate that needs to come out and be expressed and anything that would go against it could do this child harm. So that was me kind of putting that framework into practice. I thought I was sophisticated that I was going to really allow my child to have this inner sense of knowledge. Um, But really what it told him was I, I was kind of shirking my responsibility. You know, I didn't tell him that, but I think that was the impact. It was, I'm not going to tell you, so you have to figure it out. And I believe what what then resulted was him seeking out to figure that out. But what now I know, or now I see is him trying to rely on likely a pattern of sex-based stereotypes, being Mm -hmm. gentle, being sensitive, loving flowers, having affinity to the females in his life. I don't know what all he put together, but I know I shirked that responsibility of orienting him to the reality of his biological sex. And we'll come back to that, I'm sure, later in the conversation. But um, so time went on. He asked me this question a few times. Um, I gave him the same response. And um, at a certain point, he made a declaration. And uh, this declaration was made when I was at work and my partner texted it to me saying, you know, our child has told me that he wants to be a girl. He's a girl. He wants to be called she, her and sister. And so I received this text message, you know, and it kind of obviously hit me, you know, was an intense text message to receive. But my response to it was to basically tell myself, you must support him. Mm. If this is his authentic self that he is expressing, your job, no matter how you feel, is to get in line, is to get in line. And so on the drive home, you know, I I had, you know, I I was thinking this through and it was like, it does not matter how you feel. You will support your child no matter what. Can I ask a question and then I want you to continue with the story? Yes. (laughs) I find it fascinating because it's like you were trying to be proactive with this new idea in our culture, which is that there are some trans people and therefore we should almost like make the exception the rule. So we actually preemptively prepare children for this possibility and we give them this language and we make it a bit nebulous and then they can come forward with their authentic self. So like you were doing that, but you're still saying that you were surprised when your child said that he was trans Is that because he was actually quite gender conforming? Because obviously you believed in the concept in the first place of like that this could be a a trans child. So what was the conflict for you there? So I wouldn't say surprised. I would just say that it sort of hit me like a ton of bricks. (laughs) You know, it was a it was a, a moment, a really intense moment. But no, I think my partner and I on the course of this trajectory were suspecting it. We're we're you know, there was a buildup that we thought this could be coming. So I was not surprised, but it was still a moment that had a big impact on me, I guess I would say. Yeah. So you're driving. And yes, I agree with you that Mm. looking back, Mm. of course, we set the conditions for this to happen, you know? Yeah. 
So, so I'm driving, I get home mm-hmm. and, uh, I, yeah, can, go ahead. can I ask just before you, cause I'm really love the way you're telling the stories. I'm going to jump in at this break and then let you go back into the, the lovely flow. Did you know other trans kids were the mm. people to refer to, uh, you know, in your vicinity? Yes, I had, um, I knew other, ch- uh, families that had, uh, uh, transitioned their children young. Um, and, Interestingly enough, at that time, this was a couple years prior, my partner and I questioned it, hmm. but there was something when it was us. And I think one of the things when you said where you weren't surprised and I said there was something that, you know, this trajectory that led was leading up to it. He was asking me, I was responding. We were waiting. What was he going to say? He was, hmm. you know, um, there was a, actually an experience in that trajectory where I was a part of a safe zone training an LGBTQ safe zone training in my work. And one of the speakers was a um, trans identified adult who told his story. And he said, well, I knew at four. So that was like this other piece of almost like a crescendo that was leading up to the declaration and sort of set the stage for me to say, well, if this person felt this at four, Mm-hmm. then I must honor my own child. That's okay. that's a key moment, I think, for a lot of parents. They, they hear these hindsight reports from adults, and then they kind of retroactively apply that to children who are still four. So that's, Correct. I think that's a big one. Okay. So you and did you know what last <laughs> did you know gender non gender nonconforming children who had grown out of it if you follow well, me Well my partner was one mm. So this was a difference between my partner and I we both had the belief system we both had the ideology but she and she would play a key role in me coming out of it because she had been gender non she is gender nonconforming continues to be but is so grateful that she never medically transitioned because she was able to give birth to our wow. second son. Oh my God. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of factors at play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask that. I yeah. kind of knew the answer, yeah. but I wanted to raise it because it's like you had a startling, very definitive example of somebody like myself li- living with you. You, yes. you. you know what I mean? Yes. And yet at the same time, because I never really understood that. I used to think, have they not met people like me? I, they, I shouldn't say that, but yes. people who believe in gender identity. But you, you you thought there's two there's people like your partner who who's gender nonconforming who grew up to become a lesbian who 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 took that right. path and then there are others who are trans kids right and they right. are different so there are so going. many and there's so many logical inconsistencies that I came to see later but mm. we were just swimming in them okay we were just swimming in okay. them yeah. And, and I think you wanted to be supportive. I mean, you said, I want to make sure not to harm my child yeah. if the authentic self is trans. So that's why you did all that very gentle kind of distinction between boy penis and blah. Like you did all that for a reason of, to of trying to yeah, no. protect your child from harm and to be authentic, which is like, I totally understand that. Right. Right. So do I. Okay. Right. Well, thank so, you. <laughs> I mean, I totally get it. Okay. So next you you realize this is actually happening now with my my kid. right. The declaration has been made. This moment we had been waiting for. So again, to reiterate, this was not a surprise, but it still hit hard because then it was the implication. 
If this is what we believe, what do we need to do with it? What do we need to do with it? And what we did with it was when I got home from that car ride, you know, you know, I was, you know, engaging with my son and he looked at me and he said, call me girl and she, her. And so then it was like, okay, this is time to do what needs to be done. And we said, you know, great, you're a girl. We're going to call you she, her. And he went on the bed and jumped up and down. Yay, I'm a girl. I'm a girl. So my partner, I'm like, okay, you know, he's happy. But later that night when he went to sleep, we sat and talked in the kitchen and my partner started sobbing, just crying and crying and crying. Are we doing, is this what's right? Is this what, you know, are we doing the right thing? And I believe what I said was we don't have any other choice. Yeah. You genuine, and I've seen that with people like Jazz Jennings, parents who people give out about. They think this is the path. There is no other Correct. path. Correct. And people who are get, who are trying to challenge it are getting in the way of the only path out of bigotry. Yep. Yep. So, so the next day we, you know, we started calling him she, her, and we, we, we initiated changing his name. He had not asked for it, and of course that would come back around. Um, very clearly when we rolled back the social transition, but um, we went with the program. And so, you know, things, you know, we, we had our doubts, we had our questions and, mm-hmm. but we continued forward. And I would say what it was about a year and a half or so later um, when our second son, who now has adapted to having an older brother, who we call a sister, mm-hmm. <laughs> who is male. And mm-hmm. I want to say to my partner's credit again, she told me we must tell them they're male. So she was rooted in that biological reality. I think we both were just sort of in that world of, well, we want to create a world where people can be who they are so they can express their gender identity. But it, it, you know, we still had that grounding in, in male and female. Um, How I, you know, probably very confusing for our children, but there we were. Um, And so I'm trying to think where, where, Oh, so our younger son, yeah, and what age is he? And keep going. I believe he was three when he first just spontaneously said, I'm a girl. You know, one on one. This is with the my little partner. brother. The little and brother. And what's the age difference? Two years. Okay. Okay, keep going. And yep. And so she, we started to talk about it, and she is telling me, you know, he's saying he's a girl, but he's not. You know, he's not transgender. He doesn't have these sort of gender non-conforming aspects or these affinities, uh, you know, these things that make him a little different, like, like our older son. But she, at that point, started to say to me, what, are, what is gender anyways? You know, what are we really talking about here? You know? God bless her. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. But... So, yeah. so, and I'm put, holding on tight. No, we knew, we knew, we knew. Well, okay, time goes by and we end up, you know, a few months later, our, our younger son is now four. We have put him with his older brother, his older, you know, transgender sister into a kind of educational program. And that program is very progressive. And so in the first day, you make your heart and you put your family on the heart, you draw pictures or put photographs, and you put your pronouns on the heart. And so the day before school started, we're doing the hearts together um, with, you know, with both of our children. And and our younger son says, she, her. So now what do we do? 
we had the program. The program is you listen to your child, their spontaneous self-expression of their gender identity, and you affirm it. But we knew it did not feel right. It did not feel right. And so we sat in that tension and we eventually, um, you know, we did not have, we put both. We ended up putting she, her, or he, him. Um, but he got more insistent. And, and what I look back and see now is that the times when he was most insistent about wanting to be a girl, wanting to be she, her, is when the two of them were all away from us together in this milieu where he didn't have anything to hold on to. He needed to hold on to his older sibling mm-hmm. and his older sibling was pushing him away. And his older sibling was in this other category that he wasn't in. And so that's where the, the I, I look back and see the most insistence was, was showing up. So we went to a support group. Stella, did you want to jump in? Kind of, um, yeah. <laughs> reluctantly, it. because you're so, so, such a lovely speaker. But did the older brother, you know, who was the trans sister, how did he take with, oh, now you're younger? How did he, he oh, take Oh, he did that? not like it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I can see why. Yeah. Yeah. Get out of my thing. Yeah, there was tension. There was tension, you know. Yeah, for sure. So... So we ended up finding this support group for parents and caregivers of of transgender children. And again, the pronouns, you know, going to the group, we had to have the name tags, write your pronouns. Again, we had to ask our child what he wanted. So again, we're holding this tension of not wanting him to say she, her, but he said she, her. And we had to honor it because this was the program. And it wasn't just like I felt that from the outside, I was enforcing it on the inside. If you don't do this, yeah. you're transphobic. If you don't do this, you're in the wrong. This is what you're supposed to do. So we brought this question to the support group. The The question of, we're seeing that our younger son is expressing that he too wants to be a girl, but but we don't know. Is it because he wants to be the same as his older sibling? You know, we're two female parents. He wants to be the same as us. So we started to bring these questions to the group. And what was very interesting is that there was another family in the group at the same time with two male children, the same ages, the same, almost exact same years apart, where the exact same thing was happening. And so here this was. So we started to question this more. And I will tell you that that experience of of bringing this to the support group was another sort of um, brick out of the wall for me. Because the reaction of the parents in the group was at the end of that, that, that meeting, one of the moms came up to me and she just said, you know, you know, my child has just been my teacher. My child has taught me so much. And, you know, your child is trying to teach you. And this just, it's like that, that red flag went up, like, wait a second, (laughs) something does Mm -hmm. not feel right about my child teaching me this. And it was just a pattern that I started to notice more and more, this idea that some of the children that we observed in the group were really in charge, and that many of these protocols and rituals of the group were putting the children in charge. And um, so, um, you know, we can kind of dive more into that a little later, but um, the support group wasn't giving us the answers we needed. We thought, well, let's make a one-on-one appointment with a therapist. Uh, the, this gender therapist was the facilitator of the group. And fortunately, 
we knew enough, and again, this really comes from some of Dr. Gordon Newfeld's work, that um, that we were not going to take our four-year-old with us. <laughs> so we went alone to the meeting with a therapist, and we expected to have a nuanced conversation. And we entered into that appointment, and we shared again, you know, we believe our younger son is expressing that he wants to be a girl because he has an older sibling who is male who identifies as a girl. And we believe this is really coming out of a primal desire, primal urge to be the same, to imitate, to find closeness in that. And it was literally within moments, um, probably one of the first things the therapist said to us was, from here on out, I'm going to refer to your younger child as she, her. This is my policy. This is my practice. When a child says their gender to me and their preferred pronouns, I, I honor it. And that was followed by, I know this will be hard for you. It's hard for parents, but you'll get used to it over time. And yet, you, 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 this child was not this therapist's client. No. You were. Correct. Yeah. She hadn't even met, met him. I mean, maybe in the group, they might have been in the same room a couple times. So just this is one of the points that I made in the trigonometry interview and that I want to make here is that we know, <laughs> you know, there's this whole question of assessment. Just what is very clear from my experiences is that the therapists and the group facilitators and many of the parents believe that assessment is transphobia, that this goes against the innate expression of the, the identity of this child. And I am just very convinced that 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 pipeline, you know, you haven't met my child, you're already telling me to socially transition them. And then if that continued, that that pipeline would lead to medicalization, would lead to the puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgeries with zero assessment. Mm -hmm. Just based on what I've said, based on the, the belief system, and, you know, I will affirm this expression from the child, one declaration is enough. And so we went home from that. And of course, we had doubts and pushback. Oh, I will say the rest of the appointment, there was more talked about, but it wasn't therapy. It wasn't therapy. It was, um, it, why don't you want your child to be feminine? That's misogyny. Um, why don't, what's wrong with your younger child wanting to be transgender? That's transphobia. You know, it was mm -hmm. more of like a political programming than, a, than, a, than an actual therapy. And I will say that this was shocking to us. So uh, this was a surprise. Sasha, you asked me the other. Was it really yes, a surprise? Yes. This was a surprise. Okay. Because we had kind of been in this world on our own, you know, mm -hmm. um, with the belief system we had trying to do the right thing. We hadn't been immersed in the experts until this moment. Yeah. And so we were actually expecting nuance. We were expecting thoughtfulness. We were expecting exploration. And what we got was immediate affirmation. Mm -hmm. and get with the program immediate so social transition. Mm -hmm. And did you push back or were you upset? Or we pushed back. We pushed back. But, you know, we left saying that first appointment saying, we'll, we'll try this. You know, we'll try this. So I went home and that night, you know, at the dinner table, we said, okay, we're going to call you, she, her. And after that, I went to spend time with my younger son. Mm -hmm. And I said warmly to him, you know, Hey, my girl, you know, mm. I love you. And his visceral reaction was to say, no, don't 
call me that. And that stopped me in my tracks. That stopped me in that tracks. And that was enough for me and my partner to kind of keep digging, keep searching for, you know, understanding in ourselves and to decide we were not going to socially transition him. And we did go back for a second appointment and we did assert with confidence that decision and we did get pushback. And that was at the point where the therapist said, if you don't affirm, this is going to go underground. He's going to bury it within and it's, he's going to have an attachment disorder. Oh my God. And I knew, I, I knew at that moment that it was a load of crap because did you? Yes. Well, I had been. You just. I been knew so much more than she did. Gordon. I knew so much more than and, she did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I. It was just so clear to me at that time that that she had no idea what she was talking about. And if my son were to be having an issue like that, I would recognize it because of the the knowledge I had gained through my own study. And so, um, so we made the choice. You know, we 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 never went back. <laughs> we fired the therapist, not overtly, but you know, subtly. And we never went back. And um, yeah, I want to ask you something, because a lot of parents who start thinking more broadly, like whether kids questioning their gender, and they're like, well, let me learn about child development, let me learn about these general principles of like, how children form identities and relate to their siblings and their parents, they start to piece together that like, maybe this innate gender soul doesn't make exact sense. And then when they question the therapist or they ask about these kind of nuanced points, the therapists who are seemingly experts will say, well, if I try to explore this with your child, that's conversion therapy. Or if you don't affirm, mm. it's going to create an attachment disorder. And it's a, it, it takes a certain type of parent in the face of an authority figure with like a fancy degree at like a yeah. really reputable university hospital system to say, actually, you know what? No, but like, how mm-hmm. do people get there? And it's just so we're in such a weird time culturally because there's this kind of like distrust of authority and institutions. And then of course, on the other side, there, there are people saying everyone's becoming a conspiracy theorist and they don't trust their own doctors. And it's a really confusing place to be. And this particular form of medicine is being practiced in a way that's even weirder than other forms. So I'm just wondering, like, at that point, how did you shore up the confidence or authority to basically contradict what this professional was telling you you had to do? I... I'm not totally sure. I'm mm. not totally sure. But I, we had a side experience during this period, and it, it was reaching out to a parent who was also very well versed um, in, uh, you know, the study around Dr. Gordon Newfeld's work. So this was another lesbian mom, and you know, we had sort of connected with her through, you know, asking around, is there someone who could kind of cu- give a counterpoint, let's mm-hmm, say, to this mm-hmm. therapy appointment. And we went to her thinking, you know, just in a phone conversation, thinking that we were going to talk about our younger son. And what happened in that conversation was that she wouldn't, she was like, yep, we're clear on him. We need to talk about your older son. And that stopped me in my tracks because my partner had already been coming to me saying, we might be wrong. We might be wrong about our older child. And I couldn't hear it. 
But when she held me in it, and what she said to me was, you need to allow for him to be all of who he is. And there was just that flip to that, that was not just about no longer like, oh, this essential, authentic self, but like, how is he going to become all he can be? Mm, Wow. And so once that was clear, then I was 100% ready to not socially transition our younger son. It was not that we waffled or doubted or questioned because it was not easy. Mm. That period of tension was not easy because our younger son and we were very aware that we had one practice with our older child and a different practice with him. That was not fun. Yeah. But we had to, we had, we, we, we were in that tension and we stayed in that tension. And I think what that opened up in me and in my partner was, was this period that I would characterize as a period of great anguish and despair. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and this, this, uh, greater awareness and insight that if our younger son was not transgender, he had followed this exact formula, a spontaneous expression of identity, but we knew it wasn't true. Mm. And so what about our older son? And so we started to dig in, we started to learn more, we started to observe more and get more insight. And then what that was like was, is it too late? It, it was It was just this desperation inside of me to turn back time. I wanted nothing more than to go back to that conversation, to go back to what I said. And instead of saying, you can choose, say, honey, you are a boy. Isn't that wonderful? You are a boy. And if he said, but I wish I could have a baby because he had asked me, Mm. you know, around three years old, but can't I have a baby? You know, I wish Mm. you could, but honey, you're a boy and you can be anything you want to be as a boy. I just wanted to go back. I wanted to turn back the clock and make do what I did differently. And I wanted to turn back that clock. And when he made that declaration, you know, respond to that differently, but I couldn't. I couldn't. So I was just churning. And I I can say to you both, honestly, and I know you hear this from parents all the time, not a day went by where this was not my constant turmoil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, eventually, you know, it, and, and so is it too late? I can't turn back time. But then there was, um, and then I, I came to this place where I felt very clear that, um, both of us did, my partner and I, that he was not actually transgender, but it was still holding this on the one hand. On the one hand, if he is truly trans and we we go back on the social transition, we could do him harm. And on the other hand, if he is not truly trans and we don't go back, we don't get him out of this identification, puberty is coming. Mm-hmm. And puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, this is right around the corner. So we had those mixed feelings. Mm -hmm. I had those mixed feelings and I stayed in them as long as I did until I came to the decision uh, and we came to it together that I was going to have a conversation with him and do what I call getting on the off ramp off of this highway, um, bringing him off by allowing him to come to peace with his, his natal sex 
And so we can kind of come back to that emotional process for me in a minute, but just to kind of wrap up the mm-hmm, story mm-hmm. arc, um, you know, we came to that decision that, um, that our child, our older son was not innately trans. We could see what was underneath it for him. We saw very clearly the role we had played in, in leading him into this cross-sex identification and affirming it for him. Um, so we said, okay, we need to have this conversation and hold him in this futility, this futility of something that he could not change. And, um, and one of the ways that I spoke to him about this was going, going, going back. So I couldn't go back and undo the conversation, but it's almost like I had to go back and maybe I'll just dive in with this. So part of that rolling back, part of what I had to get to in myself to get out was going back. Mm. It was going back. It was going back to look at old photographs. It was going back to his name. It was allowing myself because when I was questioning, it was, there was so much inside of me, that that voice saying, this is transphobic. If you do this, this is dead naming. This is, you shouldn't look at these pictures. Just peeling that off and allowing my heart and my yearning to reconnect with my son as my son, because I had just emblazoned in my mind that this is my transgender daughter. And I had to shift that. I had to get out of that and remember him at one year old, remember him at two years old, remember him at three years old. And these are things that I absolutely had prohibited myself from doing because I classified it as transphobia. Mm. And I just want to speak to this too. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. one of the reasons when I saw your podcast description that it jumped out to me to click on it that night was because you talked about, is this a defense? Could this be a defense? And I want to say that for my son, it absolutely was. Mm. Did you seek us out? Did you put in certain things in Google looking for? I don't know. I have no idea what I clicked or what I did. (laughs) I think it was, I don't know. Um, But but, you know, at that time, I started to listen to this song. Um, I don't know if you guys know the musical Hamilton, mm-hmm. but there was a song, uh, Dear Theodosia. So it's after, whew, oh. it's, <laughs> it's after the war oh. and Hamilton and Aaron Burr are meeting their sons, their, their daughter and their son for the first time and they're singing to them. And so I would listen to that song and I would hear, you know, Philip, you outshine the morning sun, my son. And I would listen to this in the car. And one day I had, it was playing, I was in the passenger seat, but my sons were in the back and it was playing. And I thought, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try to turn around and I'm going to try to connect with my, my son with these lyrics. And when I did, he just shot me these dagger eyes. Mm. No. And this is such an important thing to understand. If we don't understand that as a defense, that my yearning is to connect and he's Mm. rejecting it. 
if we see that through the lens of gender identity, if we see that through the lens of this belief system around gender ideology, what we will see there is a child who is transgender, who is communicating that mm-hmm. identity, mm-hmm. and that it was painful yeah. for him mm-hmm. for me to try to mm-hmm. connect with him as my son. But what I had come to see, and I just want to say this was through the the study I did through the doc, you know, Dr. Gordon Newfeld's attachment-based developmental work that for a troubled kid or for a, what he calls hypersensitive, you know, these kids with they're gifted, they may are maybe mm. on the autism spectrum. Sometimes these defenses get stuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that rejection in that moment, I worried, is this because of who he is? But then over time, I realized that he did that same rejection, that same energy of defense was not limited to gender. It would come up yeah. in other situations. And so I came to realize it was a defense. And the other thing that I came to understand is that when a child has that defense stuck, you know, it's going to impact their ability to yeah. to be, to grow. Yeah. And so I actually yeah. came to see that this was not good for him. It wasn't only the long term of medicalization, but it was actually not serving him in his psychological, his emotional development. And in order to get it back, so what I did in that time of mixed feelings of on the one hand this, on the one hand that, my partner and I very consciously were cultivating the conditions in which he could come to accept change. And what what Dr. Neufeld talks about this is retreat into a re- relationship. Retreat mm. into relationship. And so I had to go back knowing that moment that something got stuck and try to build our bond, do a lot of play. You know, we wrote a musical during that year and a half where, you know, we played it on the piano and he acted it out with all of his stuffed animals. So there was a conscious cultivation. Mm of these conditions that allowed, I believe, when we came to that moment of that conversation, where I said to him, I know that I told you you could choose, but I know more now, and I was wrong. That even if he was angry, that even, you know, that I was hoping that eventually he would have the tears, that he would be able to move out of it. And that yeah. I was going to be able to hold him in that. Yeah. As can, he adapted can, to this change. Can you touch on this? You said, I was hoping he'd have the tears. And I'm aware that crying and and that sad emotion usually indicates that we have come to a harsh reality about something that we were maybe in defense about or in a fantasy mm-hmm. about. It's like this oh God, there's no escaping this. But it's such an important yeah. realization when we're trying to face reality in, in whatever, whether it's like you realize your job is making you miserable and you have to leave or you're in a relationship yeah. that's unhealthy or that you're a boy and you will yeah. always be a boy no matter what you do to yourself. Like, yeah. can you talk about the tears there? And, and... Yeah, so there's this, um, and you know, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but I came to this through, you know, this this work of Dr. Gordon Neufeld, where he it's this concept called futility. Mm-hmm. And that futility is when we come up against something that we cannot change. 
Got it. And it's actually an absolutely essential experience for our brains to develop, (laughs) for us to build this resiliency and adaptation throughout our lives. And so um, I knew he would be frustrated. I knew he would be angry, but I was waiting to see the tears because the tears were going to indicate to me that he had experienced and come up against what he could not change and accept it, come to some level of acceptance of that emotionally. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress. Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Rhyme. Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And now back to the conversation. And if you were to ask me, I would say in so much of this debate and the culture war and this information war and these dynamics that we that is this zeitgeist that we're living in, I think if I could boil it down to one thing, it is this un, unwillingness of people to accept what they cannot change, this inability to really feel that futility and grieve it. Mm-hmm. Because that's how you, that's the yeah, way out. I think it's grieving it. I feel we've come to a culture where we're, we've taught children a kind of no limits idea. You, you know what I mean? And it's essentially wrong, fundamentally wrong. You can be anything, no limits. Right. It's really pernicious, I think. And, it's, and I, I would say this is we, for the adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, we live in, in a time where we have access to more quick uh, resolutions to all kinds of problems through the use of technologies, which have been amazing. But they've warped our sense of reality in a really profound way. And it's like, there's this balancing act. Of course, medical technologies always make new things a biological possibility. That's true. But also there's still a kind of reality that's being really denied when not only do we encourage kids to maintain like an unrealistic version of what it means to be a boy or a girl, but we refuse to even be honest with them about the trade-offs. You don't socially transition a child and say, you will always be male but there are medications that have side effects that could make you look more female. That's not what social transition is. Social transition is whatever you say you are, that's exactly what you are. Yeah. And it's like parents are being told that they should never break their children's hearts with reality. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of feels good to just 
keep telling your child what they want to hear in a way, right? Like, what is that kind of emotional aspect of that? Because you were clearly conflicted, but there are a lot of loving, good parents who are in the exact same situation who have been through this. And it's not because they have this kind of nefarious plan to trick and medicalize their children. It's coming from a place of, I don't want to hurt this child who so earnestly wants this thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just giving this some thought here because mm-hmm. I know I had something. Well, so for, I think that is absolutely true. I think, and I do want to say that is that the parents we met in the support group and the other parents we know are very good parents. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they yes. love their children and they will do anything to protect them. So that is 100%. Um, I, I, I believe, and I can come back to this if you want, that there are, you know, Eliza Mondragon writes about this a lot on the online, you know, reddits within trans identified young people and adults, but there are these mechanisms in place that keep parents in line. They yes. keep doubt in line. They keep mm-hmm. that in line. So that's one aspect of this as well. I will say when you say this is about giving my child what I want, I'll come back to my story when I told my son that males cannot be females and that we were going to be going back to his name and his, you know, that, that, you know, this is what it was in his um, response to me. What he said to me was, mama, this is your fault. You changed my name. And so for me, that, I then can imagine what he would have said to me in 20 years after puberty blockers, after cross-sex hormones, after surgery or surgeries, had we stayed on this trajectory, because this is one of the things that I want your listeners to hear. It only took one declaration, one declaration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And us add that to us believing this could be my son's authentic self doing the social transition add that to the therapist who was on that same program was the the cultural collusion that collusion of experts i am certain that my son had we not got taken this off ramp had we not woken up had we not realized our mistake he would go through all of those medical interventions i have almost no doubt we would have stayed on that track. And so I want people to hear this, that it can be as little as one time. It can be one declaration and this whole cascading chain can be set into motion. And I have an example and I have a story I'd like to share that fast forward, we've taken the off ramp. We are, you know, kind of coming into, you know, what was a rough period of change but settling into, you know, things are going to be okay. We're, you know, our son is healing. He's doing great. I'd say about a year after, you know, we had rolled back the social transition. I had a friend reach out to me and um, I hadn't heard from her in a while because of COVID, but Mm -hmm. her first son, her son was now about five years old. And she said, you know, I want to talk to you um, because I, I want to hear about your experience with your transgender daughter, because my son has now told me he's a girl. Mm. So that so she reached out to me. We invited her over to our backyard, her and her husband. She's sitting breastfeeding her baby. 
And we basically said, there is no such thing as wrong think in this backyard. Okay. And we asked her to tell us what had happened. And what had happened is that her son, and this, this just sends chills down my spine. He made almost the exact declaration that mine had. Call me girl. Mm. He said, mama, I have a boy body and a woman brain. Mm -hmm. And he had started to be, call me girl. Now, what happened in that moment for this friend, she immediately was, could my son be transgender? Of course. Well, what do I need to do to support him? She, it's, you could almost physically see her putting him up and putting herself down. Like, I will do whatever is needed for this person that I'm now disconnected from. He is in this category of transgender child, potentially. So I must do what is best for him. And his kin- turns out his kindergarten teacher had two transgender daughters. So my friend goes to the teacher and says, you know, my son is expressing that he wants to be a girl. And that teacher was ready, trigger point ready, to socially transition this child in her class. And was reaching out as, as my friend then said, Oh, hold on. I, I'm not ready yet. I'll get back to you. The teacher was following up because the child was expressing this in the classroom and it was causing some tension. Mm-hmm. So my friend, her husband sat in the backyard. We talked the whole thing through and they walked away. Just basically I said, stop asking him. You stop putting him in the lead. You know what is best. And you just, it just, you know, Take reclaim that authority in your relationship. And she did. And he stopped saying it within a few days. But you can just imagine, we did something different with that declaration. And it led us to three and a half years of social transition. Mm. And, And she turned it in a different direction. And it led to her son, quote unquote, desisting within days. And And I can tell you there's something with four-year-old boys. There is something with four-year-old boys because I know seven boys at this point that around that age of four or five started to express a cross-sex identity. And out of those seven, my son won. We had socially transitioned, but now we're off. But there's another one who is now on puberty blockers. The others, the parents didn't social transition and they have all desisted from saying this. But I think there is a vulnerability for these four-year-old boys yeah. in our per- current culture with the parents, with the institutions. I think there's something developmental there that we don't totally understand. It's an amazing story of child suggestibility and malleability and what happens when a psychological theory puts kids in the driver's seat. Because they don't understand the ramifications that they're signing up for. They don't realize they're on a conveyor belt towards being a medical patient forever. Yeah. Exactly. They can't. They cannot comprehend it. And that is why it's our responsibility, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not theirs. It's our job to be the the authority, the teachers, the parents. Were you... Um, it, it, were you alone and isolated in your in your time when, when you let's say met these parents? Where, where were you and your partner? It must have been a strange time. You mean after we had rolled back social transition? Yeah, it was a very strange I'm time. I'm just imagining. 
I'm imagining how it was with the school, with your community, mm-hmm. with it was a lot. And I would say yeah. it was it how was, did you manage it? Oh, we just did the best we could. We had a couple friends we could talk to honestly. And everyone else we had mm-hmm. to, you know, really be have some very clear and simple information to. And and um and the truth is that our son came to peace with being a boy. And that, that's, so that's what we really led with when we had some of these conversations. And did you go into the school and say, we're going to go to a different We changed name schools. We absolutely yeah. changed schools. And, and all of this happened right, like right on the cusp of summer starting. So we had some questions, yeah. mm-hmm. but uh, it, 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 and I, I, I am kind of taking for granted that other people might have read or heard my other interview, but I do yeah. want to say that, you know, I expected anger, I wanted tears, but the visceral response of my older son after I'd had this conversation with him was relief. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. was incredible relief. Yeah. He laid his burden down and I just saw it so clearly as a burden that he was never meant to carry. He was never meant to carry this. This was an adult burden given to him by adults that was not his to hold. And so that was such a validation. There were so many things that happened in those hours and those days that were incredible validation that that we had made the right decision, but it was still hard. Yes. He, you know, he has a hard time with change. Many of these kids do. And Mm -hmm. So it was still a journey. It was still hard. But I think what I said in my trigonometry interview and what I can say here is that I absolutely anchored myself to the truth that was I led my son into this. It is my responsibility to lead him out. And nothing that anyone could say or do was going to shake that for me. It was just so clear that this was on me. That That's very courageous of you. I think it's also accurate. Uh, you know, I hear what you're saying. I wonder what a lot of parents think. No, I wonder what you have said a few years ago. No, he was leading. Mm. I was following. Because th- that's a big thing. And it, may I just I jump in and say, yeah, the, the, it's, it feels very like my, my Catholic religion, like the, the children have the truth. Listen to the children. Do you, you know what I mean? It, it feels like children have this special truth, mm-hmm. which was taught to me as a child that we, ha- we had purity. We had yeah, like, truth. like angels or some kind of celestial yeah. special being with this magical knowledge that adults don't we access. Closer to God. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the little children and. Yeah, I find it very, very similar. Children have this pure wisdom yeah. as if they got it from God. I just heard so much of that when I was a kid. Yeah. I think you see that and everywhere with this yeah. debate. I think people are saying that kids know. They just know. Yeah. But um, and would you have thought that he was leading you? You now say you were leading him because you've, you've kind of looked at it in right. depth. By my, my language and our disposition and our belief and we led him. I wonder what you would have said a few years ago. 
That's a great question, Stella. I'm, I, I think where I was at the beginning was I need to give him the ability to express who he truly was. So I, I did have that belief that because he made this declaration and we had seen these affinities that he had to feminine things, that we were uh, um, supporting, you know, or, or um, allowing for him to, you know, um, his true self to emerge. So I think that's more of how I said it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, broadly speaking, there is a belief from parents in our culture that they are following their chil- children's lead and that that is what you absolutely must do. Mm-hmm. That I don't think I was ever in it like that because I had come into this whole thing knowing that that's that I needed to be in the lead. So I, I just held a lot of tension mm-hmm. around it, I think, um, yeah. my, personally. But mm-hmm. here's an example that really gets to what you were saying. And this gets to the, the, the piece of keeping people in. And, and what, what I felt, you know, coming out of the belief system was that it was, it felt like I was leaving a cult. Part of it was because I didn't know I had the belief system. I just saw it as absolute truth. So after I heard your podcast that first time, it's like the pin came out and the whole belief system crashed. But there's other parts of it that also made it feel like leaving a cult. And that is because of these reinforcement mechanisms. So I emailed a friend to tell her, you know, that my son had come to peace with this, that we were going back to his name and pronouns. And she wrote me back and said, "Um, that's wonderful. As long as he is in the lead, Mm. And I don't think she meant it as a threat, but Mm -hmm. it landed Mm -hmm. like a threat. Mm. And this is what it, you know, another family. So I told you about the one family in the support group with two siblings. Well, in this period, same period of time, another family had a younger sibling. This was an adolescent, so it was a different age group. But the second child started to express a transgender identity and this this parent so vulnerably emails the the, the email list yeah. and says, with our first child, it just seemed right. With our second child, we just don't know. And just oh. following the chain of responses, mm-hmm. you know, your child knows best. You can have your feelings, but don't project them on your child. The great thing is they can always change their minds. Um, you know, just enforcement after enforcement. And then from the group facilitator, who in this case was not a parent, I will always remember this line. We are a strong and resilient community. And I know this was not meant as a threat, but what it felt like was like, we, you are a part of this. You will follow this. You will not stray from these lines. So that's how doubt is met. Mm. Kind of like when the therapist said to you, I know this is hard and it can be hard for parents to accept it. Exactly. It's like the child, like you said, it's so poignant. It only takes one declaration. And then Every single person in that child's wow. life has to completely change course. Correct. That's a remarkable Maybe. psychosocial intervention. 
That is a flip of the switch, a switch, wave the magic wand, and everybody in your life is going to go along with this new idea, whatever it is. Exactly. Even Mm -hmm. if it changes every day, even if you want medical interventions when you're a child, like that is, when we frame it this way, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And I, I have to say from an outside perspective, looking in, people who do not know that much about this, you hear gender affirming care. And it seems so benign. And it ostensibly, yeah. it is not medically permanent, right? People always say, you know, social transition doesn't impact the body at all. So it's treated as though this very light, easy thing. But yeah. your experience is particularly interesting because it's not like you have a, a medical horror story here. No. You guys exited this off-ramp before any medicalization happened, but it had a profound impact on your child's psychology. Correct. Correct. And us, you know, as parents. Because I, I will tell you, and parents are not lying when they say that they become suicidal in this. Oh. You know, and I, I never had like a suicidal ideation, but the depth of despair yeah, and not seeing a way out mm. is like nothing I, I could have ever imagined experiencing. And say once more, we got it through, once that. we... Oh, it just, um, that whole, is it too late? I can't go back. It was like a bleak darkness that was Mm. just in front of me and, um, that I couldn't see out of. Mm -hmm. And I did eventually get out of it. And I can tell you when I did, when my, when my son came to that relief Mm. and we had made it Mm -hmm. through that off ramp, my entire world just, it was just, you know, like I joke with my partner. I used to be, you know, so scared of climate change. I was like, I'm not scared of climate change anymore. <laughs> like I just, I just, I <laughs> things came back into alignment that, and I spoke oh, to this in the trigonometry interview that when we put the children in the lead, we, fundamentally impact our relationship with them as parents. But when we put children in this sacred category of transgender, we sever some of our connection. Now I did, I cannot speak for my partner, but this is what I, what I experienced that I can no longer know my child. There's something innate in them that I can't touch or understand. And that is a severing. And so when that severing was healed when that when i released it and my child released this burden that coming back into connection that i experienced it was like nothing was going to stop me from protecting that it was like this is what i must protect (laughs) wow so it's been an incredible healing experience um, but in the midst of it, it's like, this is a nightmare and it's of my own creation. And what would you say to parents who, who might be in that ambivalent, you know, that, that, that place of ambivalence or worrying that they might have gone wrong? I would say to trust your doubts. Mm. And I want to speak to this. Do we have a few more minutes? Yeah. You guys tell me. So. So there's a bigger insight here that I kind of, I wanted to get to, to talk about. Um, I've spoken a lot to this attachment-based developmental model and how much it helped me. And so 
Um, this gets to that. It's like allowing, as a parent, you you yearn for your child to be healthy. You yearn for your child to grow. You yearn for your child to unfold into all of their potential. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're in this world, you feel you have a transgender child, you're affirming, you're, you're connected to peers and experts. You have this belief that system, whether you had it prior to having your child or you come mm-hmm. into it through this experience, over and over again, there's this inner voice that can say, if you don't want your child to go on puberty blockers, if you don't want your child to go on cross-sex hormones or have surgery, that's transphobic. Okay. Okay. So taking a step back from that and looking at this idea when, and this gets to another, you know, just this whole debate looking, you know, what's coming out from the gender clinics, how these things have gone wrong. Um, I want to just sort of share some insight from this developmental model. So Mm -hmm. the idea of taking a developmental perspective on this is this idea that we are gardeners, we're not sculptors, right? We have this learning theory and behavioral approach that really sees parents and adults as sculptors. We have to sculpt our, sculpt our kids. There's a, the alternative view of that would be this developmental perspective that we're actually gardeners. That, wow. that just like a plant, that you, you know, a plant needs conducive conditions to grow, mm-hmm. but the seed has roots, it, it emerges as a plant. Uh, because that's its design. It's designed to unfold and it's spontaneous as long as the conditions are correct. And that growth process is where the fruit, the fruit doesn't come at the first stage, the early stages, the fruit comes at the end, right? And so if we take this and apply it to our child, and I'm, I'm coming back around to your question, Stella, um, if we look at this as nature's design, that our child is going to grow, if condu- conditions are correct or conducive, their child mm-hmm. will grow deep roots and unfold, then puberty is the essential rite of passage between childhood and adulthood. And so when we mess with that, yeah. I, I don't think we can even come close to understanding the implications and the consequences. I don't think we have a clue yet as to all of which this, the repercussions of this intervention actually entails. And so this connects back to my story in that I write about this in my second piece where it's a return to reality, standing in my backyard and all of a sudden having left this belief system having crumbled, I had this moment where I realized what I thought was reality, that I was doing something that was good for my child to affirm that my child is my transgender daughter. It just flipped 180. And I saw what what I was heading towards, what I had led my son towards. And it was so shocking to me, the harm I could have done it 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 was it was so shocking and there was this eliza mondegreen thread that just she wrote a few weeks ago about dante's inferno and this tumbling down to the depths of hell and i will tell you that moment for me when i saw that 
I thought I was doing something good. I could have done great damage. It was like a straight shot down the inferno. And I think wow. it, 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 it's because of this greater picture of what are we doing when we interfere in this unfolding? What are we doing? I don't think it's a simple, what's this clinical decision? I think mm. in your Hannah Barnes interview, there was so much focus on the clinical decisions, the clinical decisions. And this is like that technocratic, if we just tweak it a little here or tweak it a little there. But the bigger picture, the getting out of the trees and seeing the forest. What are we doing when we mess with this nature's design, with this rite of passage? And we're not going to see it in the kids. This is the irony here. So many adults say, but when I was four, trans-identified, when I was four, I knew. Mm -hmm. But those transgender adults can choose to medicalize or not. We're not going to see the repercussions of this until these children are adults. So, and we will never know what, what the road they could have taken. Exactly. And so this tells us we need to take extreme caution to mess with something like this. And it's the opposite of what is happening. This is what we lifted. Uh, Jen Specht are doing a conference in Killarney in uh, Ireland. And it's, you know, at the same time as a conference in uh, WPATH are, are doing it in the same town. And we called ours just what you said, the bigger picture. Yes. Because we think that hyper narrow minded with blinkers on medicalized approach is missing the sociocultural, the psychological, the legal, the, the all the other cultural influences to make us a person yes, and to just exactly. see us as as, as, it, as if it's a medical problem is missing yes. so many other parts of what it is to be human. Exactly. It's it's. it's it's shocking. I know we say this often. Um, th- thank you. And we will have to come to an end. But just what were your thoughts when you were listening to Hannah Barnes and the 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 JIDS interview and just in general? Exactly. Because you were those parents as such. You, 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 yeah. Exactly what I just said. We're, she was yeah. in the forest, but she could only yeah. see the trees. She couldn't see the yeah. forest. The forest okay. is this bigger picture of why are we medicalizing this? What it, why is there a clinical decision, period? Yeah. And it's so important that Hannah would present this. This is. Oh, I'm this so is glad she did what she did. I'm yeah. so glad she this did what she did. Yes. So am I. So am yeah, I. I have nothing and against her. Is. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. There's a whole other. There's, there's a bigger view. The bigger picture of things. Yeah. Correct. And and so I getting back to your question, Stone, I know we have to end. Um, for a parent who's in this ambivalence, mm. I want to say, trust your doubts and that you're yearning, you're yearning for your child to grow into his or her full self is not transphobia. It is not transphobia. And it's the fruit of this oh. process that is going to allow for their unique personality to be expressed. And by truncating that, we're not going to allow them that possibility. And it's not that they can't still get there. And, you know, we are learning so much from the wisdom of detransitioners and their process. So it's not like their story ends. Their story will continue to unfold. Yeah, yeah. And they will have healing, but there's a piece that we're cutting off when we do this intervention. Yeah. And so I just, 
in, I want to l- sort of leave the conversation with this, you know, why did I even write my piece? Mm. Why did I, you know, why have I chosen to share my story? And even in thinking of talking to some some dear friends of mine who are still very within this belief system, what I come back to is, you know, I, I have realized, I realized I was wrong. And that shockwave, when I, that exact moment I just told you guys about my backyard mm-hmm. where I, that mm-hmm. flipped, reality flipped, and I plummeted oh into the inferno. That moment was me saying, what if everybody is wrong? What if all these other people are wrong? What if it's not just me who was wrong, but what if all of these parents, these institutions are getting this wrong? And so I want to say, for that crack to open for people, that is plummeting into unfathomable guilt, unfathomable feeling when you take that responsibility. Um, And so I just want to say that maybe, maybe there's another what if here. What if? What if it's actually, that is actually the way we get through. You know, Eliza Mondegreen spoke in her thread. She said, what's the golden bridge? Well, it's, um, it's to say, perhaps you had good intentions. I had good intentions. I was heartfelt. And I know others are too. But now I see this from another perspective, and that perspective was incredibly shocking and alarming to me. And perhaps it's this idea that actually comes from (laughs) social justice, this idea of intentions versus impact. Yeah. Can we apply it here? Can we give people the language, the the bridge Mm -hmm. to say, I had good intentions but I know more now I was wrong. And I think that the opportunity is to see and address the harms, to take responsibility, to feel the grief and hopefully emerge into greater wisdom. And it, it takes me to that detransitioner Island graphic that I saw just this week and landing through that process it's a hard one. It's a hard process, taking yeah. responsibility and accepting what we cannot change. Coming back to that, mm-hmm. we can't change the mm-hmm. past. Mm-hmm. So we have to grieve. Yeah. But ultimately, let us land into that ocean of self-acceptance. And maybe it can also be an ocean of mercy. Mm-hmm. There... Um, There's so much um, (laughs) heat and volleying back and forth with this debate. But what what I love about our conversation today is that you've really humanized the, the pain and distress and confusion and trying to do the best thing that so many families have been through. And there's going to be a huge reckoning, just in the same way that we're seeing detransitioner after detransitioner after detransitioner, there are going to be families with that sense of, oh my God, what have I done? There's regret. And for some families 
who medicalize their children, they're going to be in the same place too with an even more complicated burden of That's right. impact. That's right. That's so right. So we are so grateful for your willingness to share this really vulnerable story. And yeah, yeah. thank you. It's really important. It's it's such a generous thing to yeah. do. It's 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 such a generous thing to do, and I, I'm really glad you, you give it all. You you totally turn up. I know. You know you you give it you give the whole yeah. honesty. You're amazing. It makes such a difference. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank the you last, so much. You're so welcome. Thank you. And I just want to leave. You know, those who know my story know that I'm you know an old you know came from the left and the social justice. So mm. when I think about the way forward. Mm. as you guys are talking about, as more parents come to this realization, as our society as a whole comes to more realization and what lies ahead. I just want to quote Alice Walker Mm. and say that perhaps the way forward is with a broken heart. Oh, that's lovely. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, Rose. We are so grateful for your time and your story. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you, Stella. Thank you for all that you do every single day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.